Please open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1 as we continue to look at the introductory statements in Colossians 1, 1 to 8. And I want to read this introduction to you, but just remember and understand that historically, the first time this was read by the Colossians, these phrases and the first few introductory statements were life-changing. They were astounding revelations. They didn't gloss over the introduction. Sometimes we do that. They were hearing a message directly from Jesus' own apostle, Paul, his special messenger. And they took these words as what they really were, which were the words of God himself. And so, listen as God himself addresses us as I read Colossians 1, 1 to 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This section is, is powerful. The section is packed. Um, it begins with this introductory statement by the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, where he is basically, in the opening verses, he is encouraging those early Christians, and he's also refuting the false teachers that were trying to infiltrate this local church. It's very, um, it's the very epitome of genius. He doesn't go after false teachers, he goes after the truth. It edifies the saints and it rebukes those who are in error. And he does that by simply, I think in the first few statements, uh, by simply pointing us to Jesus. The opening verses basically are the Apostle Paul's introduction to who Jesus is. He introduces us, number one, to Christ our reigning King, in the very first verse, talking about how he is a special messenger sent by Jesus. And Jesus is the king he is referring to. He is the messenger of the king. And then he goes on to talk about how that we are saints and brothers, faithful brothers in Christ. Talking about how we are reconciled and brought together through Christ. And his righteousness is what unites the Christians in this church. See, the false teachers were denying that Christ was the king they were denying that, that Christ could accomplish what they needed for righteousness, to be better brothers, and to be better Christians. They needed to do what the false teachers said. And Paul says, you're already saints. You're already faithful brothers because you are united in Christ. You are in his righteousness. And then thirdly, today what we're going to look at is how Paul introduces us to Christ as not just our reigning king, as our righteous one, but also as our reconciling savior. Christ, our reconciler. 
I think is who he is pointing to in verse 2 all the way down to verse 8. He's looking at who Christ is by showing us what Christ does. In reconciling us, he brings us grace and peace from God our Father. And that grace and peace becomes evidential in our lives by our love for our brothers, which is what you see from 3 to 8. It ends on that note in verse 8. Their love in the Spirit was made evident. And that love in the Spirit was a result of the reconciliation that Christ brought them, that brought them the gift of God's grace and peace. So I want to focus on point number three today. Because, again, I think it carries us well beyond verse 2 into the body of the letter. In 2b, that latter half of verse 2, Paul introduces us to Christ as our reconciling Savior. As, as we go through the text, you'll understand what I mean by this, and you begin to see it sort of flesh itself out. He, he lists two blessings there in verse 2, part B, that are granted to every person, not just the spiritually elite, not just the really religious, ritualistic people. He, he lists two blessings that are granted to all who truly trust in Christ as their reigning king and their source of righteousness. Not those who trust in their own righteousness or their own good deeds. He says these two blessings belong to all people who are in Christ. You have God's grace and you have God's peace. Through Christ, he tells us in verse 2b that God the Father gives us or brings us grace and peace. Basically what that means for us is, if you could just think about it relationally for a second... Instead of God seeing us the way we are and the way we have been, He now sees us in Christ. And He is happy with us in Christ. We, we have the smiling face of God upon our lives. That's what He's saying. Verse 2b can't be um, anything other than the greatest phrase to me in the New Testament. We have the unmerited favor of God and the peace of God that Christ brought us by reconciling us. We have that now and for eternity. We have God's grace and peace. His unearned, undeserved favor rests upon us. And that favor always precedes peace. Every time you see that in the New Testament epistles, it's always grace and peace. When we are in God's favor, we have peace with God because of our Savior, Christ, who took our place. He received the wrath that we deserve. He he paid our penalty to give us something we can't earn, which is God's favor and reconciliation, peace. It's phenomenal here. See, the false teachers would say to the Christians at Colossae, yeah, Jesus is important. He was the Messiah. He died for sinners. He gave you a great example. But you need to add to Jesus these following rules and regulations because that will make you a more faithful brother, a saintlier person. And you'll, you'll, you'll begin, as you earn these merits toward God, you'll begin to have more of God's favor. He'll favor you more. He'll bless you if you do these things. He'll love you more. You'll have better peace in your heart if you follow our commands and Jesus. And Paul starts off saying, no, you already have 
grace and peace from God our Father. It's yours. Christ purchased it. Christ earned it. We're saved by the works of Christ, not ours. His works produce works in us, which is God's purpose for salvation. Let's look at, look at the word grace for just a moment here in this sentence, in this context. God's grace here is basically defined as, as I said, as God's unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor. He's favoring you, not based on what you have done at all. Because everything we have done has been distorted by the fall itself, right? By sin. This grace is granted to us because of what Christ has accomplished in our place. Listen, Jesus, we understand this from reading the Gospels, but we, we need to be reminded, Jesus did everything that we are commanded to do, yet we fail to do. He did it not only externally, he did it internally, and he did it joyfully. He loved God with all of his heart, with all of his strength, with his mind, with everything that he had within him. We're saved by what he did. This favor is Christ's favor. God favors his son, and we are in Christ, so his favor falls upon us. His righteous life is credited by God's favor to our account. So we are loved by God through the work of his son. That's grace. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't even keep doing things to keep it. It's yours. It was sovereignly bestowed by the king. It was given to you as a result of what Christ did in your place. Because of that, we don't just have favor, we have peace with God. And God's peace basically entails the, the idea of no fear of impending doom. No fear of God's wrath rests upon the believer. We do not fear the wrath of God in the sense that it's going to come against us. We respect the wrath of God as it falls upon unbelievers. We have no fear of impending wrath before a holy and righteous God because the wrath that we deserve fell upon His Son. Jesus received it in our place. So we have no fear. We respect God. We honor God. But we do not fear the wrath of God falling upon us. It fell upon Christ. That's just in the little introductory statements here in this epistle. In this little epistle, God the Holy Spirit is pouring out hope in that introduction to the Colossians and to us. Because again, the false teachers are trying to convince the saints that they could obtain God's favor or His grace, or they had to do something to keep God's favor or His grace by following their traditions, their rituals, their legalistic ideas. But here in this text, God reverses that. He reveals in this introduction that Christ alone is the source of our grace and peace. Our reconciliation comes through what Christ obtained for us. So let's just think about the subject of reconciliation for a few moments here. Reconciliation with God. You know, some people say, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not mad at God. I, I, you know, there's a God in heaven. Okay, that's great. Well, that's not necessarily your problem. Your problem is that because of sin that dwells in you, God is mad at you. You need to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God because you offend him. I offended him. 
in my sins. I needed to be reconciled. My sin debt needed to be wiped clean. And I needed something beyond that. I needed something that would make me loving in his sight, which is the life of Christ credited to my account. The subject of reconciliation goes far beyond just what a human thinks they need. The Bible tells us what we need and why we need it because of our sinful condition. In Colossians 1.21, flip over there real quick, 21 and 22, it declares that our sins separate us from a relationship with a holy God. It declares in a, in, a, in a way here that we need to be reconciled to our creator and our sovereign master by the way that Paul describes what happened in Christ. Look what it says. And you who once were what? Alienated. And you, he says, who were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Speaking of Jesus in verse 22, Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We can't come into the presence of God. We can't enter into a relationship with God apart from, from Christ's work here. Because he says we are not only sinfully alienated, separate from God because we're not pure, but we're, we're also in our heart hostile toward God at enmity with him, doing evil deeds. It's not just that the evil is in our heart. It comes out in our flesh in our attitudes, in our conversations, in our lack of respect for who he is. So we need reconciliation. And this first chapter is about how that Christ is our reconciler. Not works that we do, not traditions or rituals or legalism. We don't keep ourselves in the favor of God by doing these things. Everything that we do as Christians that are good things come as a result of rejoicing over reconciliation. It flows out of us. It's joy-driven sanctification it's that way because apart from god's work we couldn't do anything to please god in the flesh the bible's clear about our sinful condition look with me at psalm 51 psalm 51 coincides with what it says there in colossians 121 man is alienated from god we don't deserve God's favor. We cannot earn God's favor because everything we do from birth is tainted with sin. We are separated from God due to sin. We are unable and unwilling to change our condition on our own. We need intervention. We need reconciliation that comes from outside of us because we don't come to Christ through our works, but because of Christ, He came to us to do a work, to change our hearts, because our hearts are where the sin reveals itself. Look what it says in, in 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the imputed or credited sin of Adam that is manifesting itself he's talking about here. It's it's from birth I've been alienated from God because of sin. Jeremiah, turn to Jeremiah to the right there. Go to the right of Isaiah a little ways. Jeremiah 2, 22 tells us that we are unable, we are not just separated because of sin, we are unable to cleanse ourselves of our sin on our own. Verse 22 says, though you wash yourself with lie 
and use much soap. The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. You guys know what lye soap is like? I remember my grandma making lye soap. All right? It will take your skin off. Okay? It's stout stuff. He says, even though you use much lye soap, that stain of guilt that's in your heart is still there no matter what you do to the flesh. Look on over in Jeremiah to chapter 13. He's continued to tell us that we cannot, we're unable to change our condition. We need reconciliation. Look what it says. Verse 23 of chapter 13. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Basically, Jeremiah is saying, if that's possible, okay, then you can change. Then you also, or also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. We can do good just as easily as a leopard changes his spots, or an Ethiopian changes his skin color. We can't. We're unable. We need something to change that we can't change ourselves. We need a new condition. Romans 8, Romans 8, 7 and 8 tells us we're not only separated from God, we're not only unable to change our condition externally, we're also unwilling to change our condition because of the sin that dwells in us. The sad thing is, church, is sinners love their sin more than a Savior who would take it away. And apart from God's intervention, we would dwell in it until we are separated eternally from Him in hell. Look at verse 7. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Just think about that for a second. The mind that loves the pleasures of the flesh hates God. God is that person's enemy. God is not one that they want to submit to, not one that they're just indifferent to. It's one that they hate. Now, they may not express it verbally, but it's there in their behavior. Because it says, for that mind does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. According to these texts, man simply cannot obtain God's favor nor can man atone for their own sins. We can't satisfy God's demand for holiness in the flesh, and we can't satisfy God's demand for justice, because we are unholy wretches. Even in hell, God's justice is continually, eternally poured out on the wretch there who rejects him here. It's never satisfied. Only in Christ was his justice satisfied against our sins. In three hours on the cross, Christ received what an eternity of hell could never atone for in our place. What these texts tell me and what Colossians in that introduction tells me is we need a Savior. And the good news, according to Colossians, is that God sent one. God sent not only a reigning king, a righteous one, but a reconciler. One who would reconcile wretches like us. Reconciliation with God is based on nothing more, nothing less than God's favor alone, God's grace. It's God giving us what we do not and cannot deserve on our own. And, and that grace, I think, is epitomized and it's, it's, it's seen most clearly in the greatest gift that he sent to man personally, which is Christ Jesus when he came incarnationally. When Christ took upon flesh, we saw the greatest gift of grace we could ever 
perceive and understand. He came in the flesh to show us God himself. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2 something about that. Turn with me there. Philippians 2, 5. The Bible tells us, as we understand something about grace, the Bible tells us that due to God's grace, our Master, our Savior, our Reconciler, our reigning King, the King of glory, the Creator of the earth, Sustainer of all things, Christ Jesus, He took upon flesh. He humbled Himself and took upon Himself the form of a slave in order to reconcile us. God's gift was expressed in this incarnation, this humble incarnation. In verse 5 it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be asserted or held on to, grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. When we get an understanding of, of grace, God's unmerited favor, we must tie it directly to this. We deserve to be on that cross and in hell under God's wrath. But instead, our sovereign king took on flesh to give us a gift that we cannot, cannot earn. We cannot do anything to keep. He did it when we were at our worst. He gave us what we needed most, right? The Bible also tells us that due to God's grace, according to Romans 5, you can turn there, according to, to God's grace, Christ not only came, but He came and did something for us. He came and brought us His righteous life. His righteousness is given to us. He, he took upon Himself in the flesh the penalty we deserved so that we could have what He earned which was God's pleasure, God's favor. God's, uh, God's wrath, according to Romans 5, God's wrath, His full fury against my crimes, against my sins, against your sins if you are a believer, that fury and that hatred toward your sin fell upon Jesus. His wrath was emptied out on His own Son in order to reconcile our sin debts, to wipe away that sin debt that we owed him. Look what it says in Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified or declared righteous by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. It's, it's stuff like this. It explains why Paul always writes, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. You know, if he, if, he, if he sent his son to die for you when you're at your worst, 
What can you do now to offend him? Nothing. You were pretty offensive at your worst. Christ paid your penalty. He took the pain in his flesh himself so that you could be loved and adored by God forever. Not based on what you do. You can't boast. Isn't that great? We don't have anything to boast about in heaven. When you read the book of Revelation and you see what the saints do in heaven, no one in heaven is singing a new song about me doing good things. No one is saying, worthy is Nate for all that he has done. No one is saying, worthy is Randy. Worthy are the saints at Sovereign Grace for what they have done. We're all singing the same song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The one who took our place. Who brought us God's grace and peace. Paul is always clear about this in his epistles. He starts every one of them the same way. He's always clear that it is the gospel of Christ's work alone that saves us. The good news that Christ alone is our righteousness, our reigning king, our reconciler. They were saved solely by grace alone. Sola gratia, the reformers would say. But Paul is also equally clear that the grace that comes to us is not a grace that is ineffective. It is effectual grace. He's clear that what the gospel declares, the gospel also produces. It declares that we have grace and peace so that we can live, have abundant life, so we can do good works, so we can magnify the grace and peace we've been given through Christ's work. The gospel produces something in those who receive God's grace and peace. I think that's really some of the the main points here in Colossians 1. Those who have received grace and peace from God our Father will give evidence to that grace and peace in the lives they live. You can see that beginning in Colossians 1, 3 to 8. What Paul basically does is move out of verse 2 in that introductory statement to go on to expound on the evidence of reconciliation. That's what I want to do quickly this morning. I'm going to read 2 to 8. And when I do that, I want you to think through this, okay? Basically, he's saying you have this in verse 2. Here's what it looks like in the saints at Colossae in verses 3 through 8. Does this look like that in your life this morning? Because when I read this introductory statement, I I must assume Paul's about to take us into something amazing here. It's more than just an introduction. And so so I want to ask myself as I begin to read through this text and think through this text, what does God's grace and peace produce in my life? Because when I read this text, I see what grace and peace produced in the Colossians' life. And I see that Paul's thanking God the Father, the source of these things, for this evidential change in the saints at Colossae. So what does God's grace and peace produce in my life? Does it produce anything? Is this just a mere confession, a mere introduction? Is this something we just say, grace and peace to you? Or do we actually think about we have received God's favor and we have abiding eternal peace with God because of Jesus? Do we think about that? If we think about that, I think it's going to produce something in our lives. We'll see that. But if you're not sure what it's producing or if it is producing anything in your life, just take comfort because we have a divine guide to help us see what it should produce in our lives here in verses 3 to 8. Let me read this to you. 
After he says grace to you and peace from God our Father, he goes on in verse 3 to say, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Paul basically says a couple of things here. He says, I see something in your life as a result of what God has done to reconcile you. I see what grace and peace produces in your life. I'll just give you a quick summary. Faith, love, and hope. But he also says it's an evidential faith. It's an evidential hope. It's an evidential love. Because it's made known that you have a love for others in this church, in this community. The love in the spirit that you have is evidential. Epaphras has already shared it with us. Grace and peace had produced something in the church at Colossae. Paul gives thanks to God for that. He gives thanks to God the Father for the saints because the gift of reconciliation is evidential. We see it in their hearts and in their lives. He describes it again as faith, love, and hope. Verse 4, faith in Christ. Love for what Christ has accomplished in your place. Trust in Christ alone to reconcile them. They trusted in Christ. He said, I see I see the evidence of reconciliation through your trust in Christ. I also see it in the love for the saints in verse 4. I, he says, I see it in your God-like concern for others above yourself. I see it in your God-like concern for those who are needy, not those who are worthy. We always like to love people who are worthy, right? We like to love the lovely people. We don't like to love the unlovely people. Well... All the New Testament epistles, practically all, are written to unlovely people. And Paul loved them. The church at Corinth was a horrible place to minister at, yet Paul pours out his life and heart to minister to those unlovely people because he had agape. He had godlike love. That was because he'd received godlike love through reconciliation. Because he had grace and peace, he could minister to those who needed grace and peace. But Paul goes on in verse 5 to show us another evidence of reconciliation. He gives thanks that this fruitful evidence that they have of love and of faith is driven or grounded in their hope, which means their assurance of reconciliation, their assurance of salvation, their security that is in heaven, guarded by God, garrisoned by God, as Peter would tell us. Because you have a guaranteed place in heaven. Because you are secure eternally in Christ. You express faith. And you express love for others. And you give evidence that the grace and the peace of God rests upon your life. In 6-8, to eight, Paul goes on to state that this evidence was a direct result, again, of God's saving grace alone. It didn't come to them by osmosis, it didn't come to them out of the sky. It came to them directly through hearing the word of truth alone, the gospel of God. 
It didn't come by rituals. It didn't come by legalism. It didn't come by religion. It didn't come by traditions of men. It came by hearing the good news about God's gift to men, which was Christ Jesus, the gospel. Verse 6, Paul says that this gospel produces fruit everywhere it goes. And the true gospel does that. The true gospel produces the fruit of love for God, love for God's truth, love for God's people, love for God's mission, love for God's uh, righteousness, love for God's purity. It's the gospel that produces that. It's not that that gets you the gospel. That's what the false teachers were teaching. Do these things, God will love you more, and more love will come out of you. Do these things, and you'll love others more, and that love will come out of you. But the, he's saying, look, the fruit that comes as a result of just simply hearing the word of truth in faith is a love from God that extends itself to others. The gospel, in other words, he is saying, is all that you need for sanctification. He's basically saying the gospel does not need to be supplemented by anything else. The gospel doesn't need to be supplemented by man-made traditions. It doesn't need to be supplemented by rituals or ceremonies or accountability groups or 12-step programs. It doesn't need that. The gospel will surpass that. The gospel is sufficient to not only save, but to set us apart, sanctify us, and cultivate good works in our hearts that come out through our lives. The good work of following God's commands, loving God's word. That flows out of us. It doesn't obtain it for us. We can't improve on the gift he's given us. The gift comes through Christ. It comes through Christ's perfect obedience in our place. His reconciling work on the cross. And, and that work is what drives us internally in our hearts to produce good works, to desire to honor God, to love God, to love others. The gospel, the result of the gospel is that we love God, love his truth, love his people, love his mission, love to reach the lost. His grace, not just in, in intellectualizing his grace, not just affirming it verbally, but the grace, the favor of God that has come upon us, rests upon us because of Christ's righteousness. That grace is evidential, it is effectual, it cultivates a love in our hearts for our Savior. It cultivates love for holiness inwardly. Now, we don't achieve it outwardly. I want to be righteous. I want to be holy. I'm not. I have a Savior who was. I look to Him when I fall. I trust that He pleased God in my place. But my heart longs to be like Him, though my flesh wanders. But it's that longing in my heart that causes me to pursue righteousness. But the pursuit of righteousness doesn't bring me righteousness. I already have it in Christ. I want to rejoice in it. I want to live in it. God's grace is what comforts me. His favor through Christ's work that reconciled me. That favor comforts me when I fail miserably. When I fall. It comforts me by pointing me back to my Savior who went to the cross to conquer my sin perfectly, to pay my penalty. 
I think one of the things that Paul wanted the Colossians to understand, and I want us to understand, and I need to understand better, is that our message, which is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that message is all we truly need. All who truly believe in that message will be transformed by that message. They'll be marked out because that message is the dunamis of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is effectual, and it will be evidential in everyone who believes. In other words, when Paul says, I see the fruit in your life, that I see everywhere else that the word of truth is preached and heard with faith, um, that means the word of God produces fruit in everyone who believes. The word of truth states that true faith and true sanctification comes solely by God's grace alone, not by human efforts at all. But it also comes along with fruit. The, the word of truth also gives evidence to itself in our lives. The word of God that's planted deeply in us will grow and bear fruit that conforms us to the image of Christ and nourishes others for the glory of God. True faith bears fruit that honors our Savior. We're reconciled for that purpose. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are saved to produce good works. We're reconciled to God by Christ's works so that we will bear the kind of works that will testify to Him. That's really what that means. Not that I want to have people bragging about me. Listen, I, there's, a, there's a popular song on the radio, Christian radio, I want to leave a legacy. Well, you know what? I could care less about leaving a legacy about me. I really could. What I want to do is point people to Jesus let them forget about me. I want to decrease so that he would increase. The only legacy I want to leave is one that says, I don't know who that guy was, but he sure liked Jesus. He knew something about the gospel of Christ. Turn with me to John 15 to see something I think very important. Something that we need to be reminded of this morning. Which is the fruit or the evidence of reconciliation that Jesus talked about that would manifest itself if we are in Christ. If he is truly our sovereign, reigning king, our righteousness and our reconciler, then there will be something in our lives that testify to this. According to Jesus himself, in John 15, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word... Same word that, that Paul's talking about in Colossians. The word that I have spoken to you, you're already clean because the gospel is in your heart. You have been called by God. So he says in verse 4, Abide in me, dwell in me, take up your abode in this truth. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. So in other words, you can't produce the fruit of sanctification, of salvation, apart from being in Christ grafted in, neither can you, he says, unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears what? A little fruit. No fruit. Sometimes fruit. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's pretty clear. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burn. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is this is it. By this, my father is glorified, magnified, made much of. Here, this is what it means. If you want to glorify God, make much of him. Here's what God is going to do. You're going to be able to bear much fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. What Jesus is simply saying here is that if you bear no fruit, if you have no love for God, no love for his commands, no love for his people, no love for his purposes, you must question whether or not you're really in the root. If you're not seeing fruit, if you're not bearing fruit, today is the day to call upon the one who bore it for you righteously and perfectly. Repent of your sins. Confess your sins to him. Trust in his righteousness. Call upon him in faith and ask him to transform your lives. Because there will be fruit in those who are reconciled by God's grace. Fruit bearing may take time and maturity, okay? Not everyone bears fruit that looks like watermelons, all right? Sometimes fruit looks like grapes. Sometimes the fruit may be small, but it's a result of being in the vine. So it'll be good fruit. It'll glorify God, and that fruit will nourish other people who partake of it. That grape may be a tiny little fruit, but it sure is a sweet fruit, isn't it? It's a sweet fruit. And the sweetness of that fruit is a direct result of what was flowing through it because it was united to the vine. It was enriched by the vine. So it is with God's grace and the fruit of that grace. The fruit of God's grace and peace will be rich to those who partake of it, rich to those who are blessed by it. It will testify to His work in our lives. And it will be evident so as I conclude, let's, let's, let's think about that for a minute. Let's take an inventory of our fruit this morning. Not for the sake of condemning ourselves and feeling guilty, but for the sake of examining ourselves through God's Word so that He will prune us, so that we will produce more fruit for His glory and the good of others. What I want you to do is ask yourself a few questions this morning beginning with how does God's gift of grace and peace evidentially reveal my love and faith in Christ? How does His gift of salvation make itself manifest in my love for Jesus? Do I tell others about Him? Do I look toward evangelism as something that I dread or something that I love? And it's still scary even if you love it, but do you want to do it? Do you want to share the good news of God's reconciling grace? Do you love the saints? Do you love the saints above yourself? Do you love the church above your work? Do you love the church above your hobbies and your interests? Are you willing to love Christ's people and show them grace like Paul talked about in Colossians 1, where he talks about, I'm, I'm suffering on your behalf. So that you would hear the gospel. Let's ask ourselves, does, does our hope 
does our assurance of heaven manifest itself here on earth? Are we at peace in this world that we live in? Are we at peace or do we try to do things to make sure that God's favor still rests on us? We, we still try to do things to, to keep our own peace by trying to earn his favor, trying to keep in God's good favors. When we do things wrong, we, we think, okay, well, if I go to church more frequently, he'll love me more and I'll feel better about myself. Or, or I'll read my Bible more so I'll, I'll have God's peace on my life. Or I'll serve my neighbors or follow these rituals so that I can keep in God's good graces. Or, or are you truly assured that your place is in heaven through the grace that God's given and the work of Christ? If you do, all you need to do when you fall short and you feel guilty is confess your sins, repent of those sins, turn from those sins, and back to the Savior who lived in your place and died to pay your debts so that you could have grace and peace with God forever. Listen, if God's grace and peace resides on you through Christ, if it rests on you through Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the love for things like church attendance and reading the Bible and other people and evangelism and following biblical rituals like the Lord's Supper and baptism and fellowship, all those things are the result of looking to the grace and peace you have been given in Christ and rejoicing. You don't do it grudgingly. You don't have to do it without pleasure. Those things will be a pleasure that flows from knowing that you are in God's favor. Those things do not have to be a dreaded effort to maintain God's favor. God's given us His Son as the greatest gift of all. And His Son has won His favor for us. Christ's work alone earned God's eternal favor and granted us eternal peace. That truth, I think, alone is what Paul's trying to convey to the Colossians. That truth will alone produce the fruit of reconciliation in their lives. It already had. And he was giving God thanks for it. So let's give God thanks today as we take stock of our own hearts and lives and think about our desires. And though the fruit may be small, maybe the fruit of fellowship is small, maybe the, the fruit of Bible reading is small, Maybe the fruit of reaching the lost is small, but it's there and you have the desire and it's, it's sort of growing inside of you. Give thanks to God, our Father, because we have grace and peace. We can go into this world and declare the gospel that transformed us and reconciled us to God forever.